Well, today we uh, begin a new series. Together we will journey through the New Testament book called Hebrews, which by my estimation is one of the most interesting books in the Bible. But first, a short parable based loosely on the book. Something I wrote on a day when my weirdly creative side got the best of me. Once upon a time, in a different universe, on a small inhabitable planet, lived a group of self-aware beings called the Piddle Dumps. They were somewhat like us, only they had three legs and one arm, and they were purple. You'll have to excuse me today. Now, the Piddle Dumps were a people whom God loved. He had also created them with the capacity to love Him. Piddle Dumps, however, were very strong-willed, and they wanted to do what they wanted to do, even if they knew God wouldn't like it. They constantly sinned against God, so He made a way for those little Piddle Dumplings to be forgiven. God said, one day I will show you a better way, but for the time being I want you to stand on your head for three days every time you sin against me. Now, some of the piddle dumps just ignored God, but those who really loved Him tried to follow this new rule. In fact, after a while, some of them spent so much time on their heads, they forgot how to stand right side up, thus becoming known as the piddle dumpling upside downs. Over time, The Piddle Dumpling Upside Downs actually began to take pride in their new name because they figured it showed just how devout and special they were. After a while, though, standing on their heads became less a sign of repentance from sin and more a way of just trying to look better than the other Piddle Dumplings who didn't stand on their heads. Every once in a while, God would find one of the Piddle Dumpling Upside Downs who seemed to understand things a little bit better. And speaking through him as a prophet, God would try to help the rest of the people see that what really mattered was not standing on one's head, but loving God and living for Him. The standing on the head part had mostly been instituted so they would understand sin and yearn in faith for the day when God's promised better way would arrive. He kept telling them to prepare for that day. But instead, the Piddle Dumpling Upside Downs came up with their own ideas about what God's better way should look like. Finally, the time came and God shocked everyone by becoming a Piddle Dump himself. He did this in order to better communicate with all the other Piddle Dumplings and also so that he could make a way for them to be forgiven forever. If it wasn't enough that God became a three-legged, one-armed purple Piddle Dump, he also allowed himself to be killed in order to satisfy the justice His holiness demanded for the sins of the other Piddle Dumplings. In fact, He was killed upside down in order to fulfill God's former mandate to stand on one's head for forgiveness of sin. But He also explained that those who received His gift of grace by faith would no longer have to stand on their heads to please God. A few of the Piddle Dumpling Upside Downs began to understand. They accepted what God had given them and started to learn to walk on their legs as God had intended. It was an amazing thing to see. Many of the Piddle Dumpling Upside Downs, however, couldn't embrace the change. They didn't believe God's promise had come true. They were very fond of standing on their heads. 
Meanwhile, the rest of the piddle dumps, the ones who had never stood on their heads, also had their chance to receive the, the forgiveness of God, even though they had always ignored him in the past. Some of them just laughed at the idea that, of God in the form of a piddle dump, rejecting what he had said and done. But many others accepted his gift and learned to live life his way. God called those who received his sacrifice piddle dumpling right side ups. And he promised them an eternal home in heaven where nothing would ever need to stand on its head again. The end. Now, what in the world does my parable have to do with the book of Hebrews? Well, parables are vague by definition, but I do think the book of Hebrews describes a religious history somewhat parallel to the one I suggested. Because of Jesus, everything has changed. And yet, we also know that Jesus was God's plan all along. One of the awesome things about Hebrews is that it shows us the continuity of the story of God. His plan was always His plan. In Hebrews, we learn about how God's plan was working before and how it is working now. Hebrews shows us that the story of our faith goes all the way back to the beginning at the same time, Hebrews explains how things changed for the better when Jesus came. We can see all of this in the opening sentence of the book. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Look at it with me. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. We sang about that this morning. There was a word that was spoken for thousands of years. But in these last days, He's given us a better word in His Son. See, within this opening, we see both the continuity of our faith, which goes all the way back to the beginning of history, as well as the fact that we now have something that is as much better for us as the Son of God is better. Hebrews will help many modern Christians gain a broader perspective, demonstrating just how the Old Testament story flowed into the New Testament story, even to the point of realizing that the new way is really only the completion of the old way. And yet we'll also come to understand very clearly that the new way is better, so much better. Because when Jesus completed what had been the plan of God all along, He perfected that which was imperfect. One of the ways Christianity stands out is in the fact that ours is a religion with a truly comprehensive meta-narrative. This is true of no other faith system on the planet besides Christianity. God's story, as told in the Christian Bible, covers the beginning of time until that day when time will be no more. God's story, that which we call history, is told within the pages of Scripture. When we embrace His story just as it is revealed in Scripture, we find that we have a very reasonable context, not only for understanding the, the key events of the past, but also of the present and even the future. I'm calling this series... <laughs> a better way, because that is exactly what is outlined in the book of Hebrews, a better way to live and a better way to know God. 
we will also find that Jew or Gentile, all people have a tendency to return to the old way, which is sort of like standing on our heads, like those crazy piddle dumps in my parable. And see, if we're still standing on our heads to be forgiven the old way, we can easily miss out on the benefits of the new way without even realizing it. So this morning, I just want to give you a bit of an introduction to Hebrews. And here's a Bible study tip. Anytime you begin a study of a particular book of the Bible, there are at least four areas you might want to explore before getting into the text. I've used all words that start with the letter A to help you remember these areas. When approaching any book of the Bible, it helps to be aware of the author, the audience, the overall architecture, and the principal application of that book. That's just a good way to get an overview before diving in, to look at the author, the audience, the architecture, and this big picture application. So first of all, let's talk about the author. Perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, the author of Hebrews is an unsolved mystery. Although there will always be some skeptics to attack the established authorship of any book of the Bible, the fact is that every other book in the New Testament has a clearly defensible author. Hebrews, however, does not. The author of Hebrews never identifies himself And no other book in the Bible clearly references who this author may have been. This leaves us considering clues to try to figure it out. Now, first of all, why is this important? Why has the authorship of the book of Hebrews been one of the biggest debates in theological circles for centuries? Didn't God write the Bible? Why does it matter that no clear human author has been established? This gets into an important area of apologetics, that is the art of defending Scripture against those who seek to destroy or diminish it. One of the biggest things we hear these days is the statement, God didn't write the Bible anyway. It was written by fallible men. I've heard that in popular movies, seen it in online communications, heard everyday people throw it out there as a reason to reject certain biblical teachings as if pastors and theologians are somehow surprised by the profound revelation that human authors were involved in bringing us Scripture. The attempted point is that we can't trust the Scriptures to always be true and that we certainly shouldn't look at the Bible as some kind of sacred revelation of God because, after all, it was written by men just like us, flawed people who were only writing their own opinions, which, of course, would have been tainted by various kinds of bias and misinformation of the time. All of us have probably been influenced by this line of thinking more than we know. Many of us tend to entertain these kinds of thoughts when we don't like what we read, don't we? When when what the Bible says doesn't fit within your already established worldview, don't you tend to lower your view of inspiration? I think it's true that when a text hits a nerve, somewhere in the back of our minds, even many devoted Christians tend to think, surely God didn't really want it said that way. You might be afraid to come out and admit that, but many times your faith in what you read is subtly diminished by the insidious thought that maybe the human author didn't quite get it right in this spot or that. Hopefully everyone can see just where this line of logic leads. It leads to rejecting and rebelling against the Word of God whenever it is convenient. 
also thinking this way completely misses the point that God's Word is meant to be corrective. The Bible will always contradict the messages of this world and the messages of your own selfish thinking. And why believe any of it if you think parts of it are messed up by men? Why wouldn't the concept of heaven itself simply be the wishful thinking of fallible men if the words of Scripture are not coming straight from the heart of God? And of course, this is exactly why many people don't believe the Bible or the gospel it contains. They became convinced at some point that God didn't write the Bible. And if God didn't write the Bible, then it has no authority whatsoever. The problem for them is that God actually did write the Bible. The fact that he used men as his instruments does not diminish the fact that it came from God. We call this inspiration, which means breathed out of the mouth of God. That's what the Bible says of itself. It says that every word of Scripture was breathed out of the mouth of God through the pens of very select men. And that every single verse of Scripture ultimately came not from those men, but from God. That's why the Bible says of itself, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is God-breathed. And that's what we believe. I won't be able to preach a sermon defending the divine authenticity of Scripture again today. I did so a few months ago. But the bottom line is that the Bible is either divinely inspired and perfected by a perfect God or it's not reliable. There are compelling reasons to believe that the Bible is from God. It is, after all, a collection of books that's completely unparalleled in the history of literature. There are thousands of fulfilled prophecies to consider perfect historical accuracy, incredible continuity through various centuries and cultures. Just to touch on the subject of the singular uniqueness of Scripture, there are many convincing proofs. Whole books have been written that point out the divinely inspired, inerrant nature of Scripture. One of those proofs, you see, is found in the identities of its human authors. These were very special men, indeed. They were true prophets, men who spoke for God. This is the reason that the physical author of each biblical book is important. The fact is that the men who wrote Scripture were not just your average Joes. Most of them were miracle workers. Additionally, when it comes to the New Testament, the authors were among the privileged few who had physically spent extended time with Jesus and witnessed His death, burial, and resurrection firsthand. The particular author of each book of the Bible is important because of the special authority granted by God for each of those authors to write Scripture. They were called out by Jesus for just such a purpose. They were there with Him. They knew Him. They experienced His resurrection. Everyone wants to know why some, some books were included in the New Testament and others were rejected as either heretical or simply human. Well, here's the deal. The actual author of each book was probably the biggest key as to whether or not it was accepted as part of the inspired Word of God. The author, along with the time frame when it was written, were key. Most of the apocryphal books that people today want to ask about were written a hundred or more years after Jesus had been gone by people who came later and had their own ideas. This is why they were rejected. Why were the Gospels of Judas the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, not included. 
Everyone wants to know this, and it's a good question, but the answer is so simple. Honest historians attest that each of these books and others like them were written not actually by Mary or Thomas or Judas, who had long since been dead, but by fake authors decades or centuries later using those names as pseudonyms. These and other so-called gospels never ever considered scripture by anyone in the early church. They're being dug up now. They weren't even written until the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., long after everyone who had been with Jesus was dead, and long after legend and lies had begun to be repeated by the enemies of God. These books were summarily rejected by the church, even as they came along, because they were written by latecomers who were nothing more than imposters with an agenda. And when I say they were rejected by the church, I don't mean just some council or group of powerful people. I mean people like you. The rank and file knew to reject these latest nonsense books that had come up in favor of what had already been written down by the apostles and their close companions, most of all, most or all of whom had actually been with Jesus. They saw the latest cults for what they were, contradictory to the truth of God's Word. They knew that these later books were penned mostly by adherence to the cult of Gnosticism, That's why they're called the Gnostic Gospels. Gnosis means special knowledge in Greek. Gnostics claimed to have received a special revelation of knowledge from God. The problem was that these later revelations actually contradicted what God had previously revealed and what had already been accepted by the church as the Word of God. And you see, the anonymous authors of these books held no more authority than you or me. Why should anyone listen to them or read their stuff? That's why these extra-biblical books were not considered Scripture by the early church, because they were written by imposters using pseudonyms of people who they knew or are long dead, and they were using it for their own ends. Unlike the writers of Scripture who were considered trustworthy revelators of God's Word, these new authors were not eyewitnesses to Christ, and they had not in any way proven that they were His spokesmen. And you see, with the possible exception of Hebrews, a strong case can be made for the established authorship of every, each book in the New Testament. Each and every book besides Hebrews has an obvious author who, in every case, held special authority from God. In fact, let's just very quickly walk through the authors of the New Testament books. <clears throat> Matthew, the first gospel in our Bibles, was written by the disciple of that name. He had been a tax collector before Jesus called him to be one of the very select group known as the Twelve Disciples. He spent three years learning from Jesus on a personal level, placing him in a unique position to write Scripture. Like the others, he was a witness to the resurrection of Christ. Saw it with his own eyes. Eleven of the twelve, including Matthew, later came to be called apostles after Jesus ascended in heaven. That means the ones who have been sent out. They came, their learning from Christ was over. Now they had been sent out to speak for him, to share his gospel, to share his message on his behalf. Mark my personal favorite, was written (laughs) by John Mark, who was a very close associate of the Apostle Peter, later of Paul and Barnabas. Mostly Mark wrote down Peter's sermons and 
recollections. He probably served as something like a scribe for Peter. The accounts of the Gospel of Mark are also consistent with Matthew and Luke. In recording the words of Peter, Mark gives us a view of the Gospel through the eyes of the man who had been perhaps closest to Jesus and who also had performed miracles to demonstrate his authority as a prophet and a spokesman for God. Additionally, I personally agree with the theory that John Mark was there all along as a young boy who followed after Jesus along with the disciples. I believe he spoke of himself in Mark 14, 51, meaning, as he, uh, meaning that he too was an eyewitness to the death, burial, and resurrection. That's not provable, but it is certainly reasonable to believe. Regardless, Mark wrote mostly for Peter, the apostle. Luke was probably the best historian among early Christians. He traveled everywhere with the Apostle Paul and meticulously took notes. His Greek was immaculate and his writing skills were excellent. Luke was almost always along with Paul on his missionary journeys. Many scholars believe Luke may have helped Paul with his Greek, perhaps editing, perhaps even physically dictating some of it, as several times Paul was in chains. Luke wrote his gospel from Paul's perspective. Paul was called an apostle because he had received many direct revelations from Christ and he showed himself to be a prophet of God through signs and miracles. Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, a history of the early church, basically wrote under the authority of the apostle Paul. Regardless, I also personally believe Luke was an eyewitness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He was alive at the time and I believe he was a witness. John was another one of the 12 disciples who became an apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John and also the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the Revelation. His closeness to Christ and the divinely inspired nature of everything he wrote is obvious. His authority to speak for Christ was clear from the beginning. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were all written by the Apostle Paul whose special authority to write scripture I've already mentioned. He was set apart by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. James was written by one of the earthly brothers of Christ, as was discussed at length when we did our series through his book. James grew up with Jesus. This gave him automatic authority as one who would have been in a special position to know whether Jesus was for real or not. Many people fail to notice that the physical family of Christ, including his brothers and sisters, were there along with the disciples at the ascension and were part of the earliest church meeting in what the Bible calls the upper room. They too were eyewitnesses of the resurrection and were completely involved in the earliest stages of the church. I shared the scriptural evidence for this when we did our series through James. First and second Peter were written by the apostle Peter whose authority to speak for Christ again was obvious to those alive during the time of their writing. Jude Jude was written by another of the earthly brothers of Christ, making him also the brother of James. <clears throat> Already mentioned, both Jude and James were always referred to by early church writers and by the apostles as the brothers of Christ. And so each New Testament book was identified by a clear author who had special authority to speak for Jesus. Besides Luke and Mark, who acted like scribes for Peter and Paul, they were all either apostles or brothers of Christ. I personally believe all of the authors, including Luke and Mark, were eyewitnesses of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The authority, the eyewitness testimony 
of these authors was the primary reason the early churches accepted these books as the canon of Scripture, inspired by God, never to be added to or taken away from. They considered these books, and only these books, to be the Word of God. As the Apostle Paul put it, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And the Apostle Peter said, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I do believe that the identity of the authors themselves was one of the primary reasons these books were considered to be a part of the revelation of God to mankind. The same was true for the Old Testament, by the way. Not just anyone could be considered a prophet and write Scripture. Prophets proved themselves with predictions that came true, and often they proved themselves through signs and miracles. If they made an error, they were stoned to death for claiming to speak for God when obviously they did not, since God wouldn't have made a mistake. In the New Testament, there was still some of that kind of authority going on, but added to it was this idea of proximity with Christ. Those who had been with Jesus, who had been trained by Him, who had witnessed His resurrection, those who knew firsthand that He had actually risen from the dead, these were the people whose writings quickly came to be accepted as Scripture from God. Later writings from people who had not been with Jesus were rejected just as they should have been. That leaves us with the authorship of Hebrews. If we don't know who wrote it, then why was Hebrews almost universally considered to be divinely inspired Scripture by the early church? Why was it included in the Holy Bible if we don't even know who wrote it? Well, there really can be only one logical conclusion. The early church must have known exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Otherwise, I really think they would have rejected it. And so I absolutely believe the authorship of Hebrews was common knowledge in the first century. The reason we are no longer sure who wrote it today is that unlike every other book, the writer does not identify himself by name within the text itself. God has preserved his word in miraculous ways, but within it, the name of the author of Hebrews is not mentioned. That means we have to unravel almost 2,000 years worth of theories if we're to try to figure out who the early church thought wrote it. The rest of church history has not necessarily been preserved like God's scripture has, so we are left theorizing. There is both internal and external evidence to consider, but the truth is that these efforts have only led to more debates for centuries. We simply do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but there is one thing we can absolutely know, and that is that the author had to have been one who the people believed spoke with authority given to him through Christ. This author had to meet the same criteria met by all the other authors of Scripture. Otherwise, this book would have never been accepted as part of the inspired Word of God. To my knowledge, there are really only four names that are seriously discussed by most scholars. Paul, Luke, Barnabas, and Apollos. I personally do not believe either Apollos or Barnabas had the authority to write Scripture. They were not seen as apostles, nor did they serve as scribes to apostles. The man known as Apollos was definitely not with Jesus, 
And there's no evidence that Barnabas was with Jesus either. Personally, I believe that which was commonly accepted for hundreds of years to be true. From A.D. 400 until A.D. 1600, the book was called the Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. I do believe the author was likely Paul. Personally, if I were to simply read Hebrews in English without any outside influence, I would think I'd just read another one of Paul's letters. Having said that, I'm well aware that many Greek scholars see it differently, but I have a possible solution to their issues with the Greek. Some say the Greek is too good for Paul, but I've already mentioned the fact that Luke was like a scribe to Paul, and Luke's Greek was superb. Therefore, I believe Hebrews to be the words of Paul with a little more help than usual from Luke. My theory is that Hebrews was written later, and Paul had health issues by that time, causing Luke to need to do a little more than dictate, thereby explaining the reason for the difference in style and the better use of the Greek. Now, that's just my theory, and considering the fact that I came up with it myself, you can feel free to ignore it. But regardless, I'm in pretty good historical company when I consider the author of Hebrews to basically be the Apostle Paul with help from Luke. I think it's either that or Luke simply wrote it, which is also very possible. But again, why is this important? Well, it isn't that important to know for sure at this point exactly who wrote the book or else God would have made sure to inspire the author to include his name. What is important is to understand that whoever it was had to have been a person who was seen by the people as divinely inspired with the authority to write Scripture. Because of this, I believe the author must have measured up to the criteria of the rest of the biblical authors. Otherwise, why couldn't someone write their own words today? Say God revealed it and start their own spinoff of Christianity. And of course, that is exactly what happened. It began to happen in the second and third centuries with the Gnostic writings that I mentioned. Those writings put down by false teachers, which now have become popular tools in the hands of those who would attempt to discredit the true New Testament text. You're likely aware that the effort to write further or different scripture has actually happened repeatedly throughout history. We could talk about the Koran, several centuries after the Gnostics. We could talk about the Book of Mormon as recently as the 19th century. We could talk about the writings of the Watchtower Society and the deeply flawed and twisted translation of Scripture used by Jehovah's Witnesses, also from the 19th century. Why are these books heretical? Why are they not to be considered the Word of God? Well, for starters, God manifested Himself on earth as Jesus about 2,000 years ago, and He presented Himself as the final Word, not a link in a chain. No, Jesus said the rest who would come after him would be antichrists and false prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of the story, and now we await his return. When Jesus said it is finished from the cross, that is exactly what he meant. The message of Christ and his apostles is the final word. We must reject every other message. In truth, there are many reasons that the specific New Testament documents stand apart from other religious writings, many powerful reasons. But one of the most important factors to remember is the special authority of the human authors of each book. 
That is why I choose to look at the book of Hebrews as likely the teachings of Paul with Luke acting as his helper and perhaps taking extra liberty with the Greek. Why again? Because like all the other New Testament books, Hebrews simply must have been written by someone with that kind of authority from God, among which Paul and Luke are the most likely candidates. Now, you'll be happy to know the other three points are much shorter than the first point. And less academic, all right? Let's talk about the second day, which we need to consider when beginning a study of any book in the Bible. Let's talk about the audience. The original recipients of the book of Hebrews were very religious people. They, like many today, were better about the religion part than the relationship part. Maybe they were sort of like a lot of Catholics, or maybe they were like some Bible Belt Baptists. See what I did there? I just offend everybody. <laughs> they, they knew how to keep certain rules and rituals, but they had a harder time actually walking with God. In truth, we all have problems with this. That's why I think this book is going to apply to us in more ways than we might think. The original audience of Hebrews was made up of Jewish Christians. We know from some of the texts that they were likely second generation believers, meaning that they were not those who had experienced Christ personally, but those who had heard about him from others, just like us. That said, we also know that Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. We know that because there's much discussion about the temple in the present tense, and the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. As the name of the book suggests... The original audience was mostly made up of those who had been devout Jews. These words are written to Hebrews. Those who understood the Old Testament probably better than any of us here today. That means that the original audience was steeped in a religious structure, including priests, sacrifices, ritual, tradition. These particular Jews, though, had proven to be the true Israel, those who had accepted God's Messiah in Jesus Christ. So again, the book of Hebrews was written primarily to the true Israel and specifically to the tens of thousands of Jews who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. Gentiles, of course, could read it too, but they would have needed help understanding some things, just as I suspect we will as well. Also important to note is that serious persecution against Christianity was heating up under the Caesars during this time, and because of this, it would appear that some of these Jewish Christians may have been considering a return to the more culturally acceptable Judaism of their roots, at least in some way. Maybe they thought they could syncretize the two a little more in order to protect themselves from the persecution that was coming down on those who chose to openly identify with Christ. See, at this point, traditional Jews had a better time of it with the Romans than did Christians, who were quickly finding themselves labeled as enemies of the state. Possibly because of some of these historical realities, the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to explain that while the foundation of Christianity is in Judaism, to return to those former things is to exchange God's better way for that which was only ever meant to foreshadow His ultimate plan in the first place. We will find in this book that religious practice and ritual have only ever been tools or symbols of the real and personal relationship God always wanted to have with His people. Lastly, this particular Hebrew audience seems to have been at a standstill in their faith. They didn't know how to go forward, and so they were considering going back. 
We've all been there before. I think we will find that the admonitions and instructions given to the Hebrews will be very helpful to us and our future as a church. Let's look thirdly at this book's architecture. By architectural, I basically mean to consider an overview of the book. If we had time, we could look in various um, Bible resources for detailed outlines, but for today, we're going to be minimalistic because this particular book actually gives a general overview, overview in the very first two verses. Again, Hebrews opens with these words, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. The basic architecture of the book of Hebrews is that of contrast and comparison. There's a continual and consistent comparison laid out between the previous 4,000 years of Jewish history and the culmination of that history represented in Christ. This dichotomy shows up constantly in virtually every chapter. The case made throughout Hebrews is that the new way of grace in Christ is, the, is, is so much better than the old way of the law of Moses. For our purposes, we will come to understand that the new way in Christ is profoundly new for any of us. Even though we didn't come from a Hebrew background, it's still it's new for all of us because this new way actually stands apart from our own inclinations, the inclinations that we see in every other religion that has ever existed in the history of man. Jesus is simply a better way. Commentator Warren Wiersbe writes, the word better is used 13 times in this book as the writer shows the superiority of Jesus Christ and his salvation over the Hebrew system of religion. Christ is better than the angels. Hebrews 1.4. He brought in a better hope. 7.19. Because he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Chapter 8 verse 6. The basic architecture of Hebrews is to carefully and meticulously map out a better way to know God. In order to understand how Jesus is a better way, we will also seek to understand the old way. And I think you'll find that to be an interesting and hopefully enlightening study. One of the best parts of understanding the old way is seeing how clearly it pointed forward to Jesus. Lastly, let's take a look at the large-scale application that comes out of the book of Hebrews. How are we going to apply this to our lives? I like to preach in series because I have found that God often seems to have a general area that he wants to work on for a particular season within a particular local church. I've seen this happen over and over. Many of you know and have experienced what I'm talking about. Small group studies somehow line up. Circumstances line up. Often in a way that is uncanny. God guides us in a single spiritual direction as a church family. And somehow I wind up preaching about the right things at the right times. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So what's it going to be now that we're working through the book of Hebrews? As Go Church continues to rebound from some hard times. Um, just historical realities of our own. Um, COVID and everything else. As we rebound from that to some pretty awesome times of late. What is it all going to mean? Where are we right now and where do we need to go? What does God have to say to us right now? What will this season of spiritual growth look like for our church family? One thing that comes to mind is that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who were undergoing profound change. 
their world was changing overnight. As one commentator put it, the ages were colliding. God was shaking things up. The shakeup was happening in the political realm and also in the religious realm. In fact, the temple, which was the epicenter of everything Hebrew, the entire sacrificial system of Judaism, was about to be utterly destroyed forever. Meanwhile, Christianity was facing extreme persecution. Massive change was in the air, especially for these Jewish believers. Basically, the past was being taken from them. How would they need to respond? Perhaps we too are entering such a time. I don't know exactly what that means, but we will be considering our foundations in preparation for whatever shakeups may be coming our way. We will take a look at those things to which we find ourselves holding fast. Do we hold fast to things which can be shaken and destroyed as the Hebrews tended to do? Are we holding fast to structures and programs and buildings or even certain spiritual leaders? As Dustin so eloquently covered last week, the book of Hebrews will lead us to place our only confidence in the Lord, in His Word, His providence, His plan, His promises. In addition, we will learn why it is important to understand the Jewish roots of Christianity. We will understand how powerful it is to connect ourselves and our own beliefs to the beginning of God's interaction with humankind. Unlike Islam, for instance, basically invented in the 7th century, we will find that our faith goes back not just 2,000 years, but to the very beginning. This understanding will strengthen our faith and help us better defend it to others. Even early philosophers like Plato understood that the greatest truths are the most ancient truths. On this earth, it could be said that there are no more ancient truths than Hebrew truths. I look forward to discovering these truths with you. So let me give you some guideposts as we work through the book of Hebrews. Most of what we cover will f fall into one of these four major categories. It's there in your notes. You can fill in the blank. Uh, might be a good Bible study tool for you going forward as you study this book on your own. Four things. Number one, exploring our roots. Number two, examining our faith. And by that, I don't mean just sort of our religious uh, practice. I mean our faith, our actual faith in Christ. Number three, embracing our identity. And number four, exalting his sufficiency. I'd encourage you to read through the book of Hebrews this week. And just for fun, one thing you could do is just jot down which one of these four categories each section mostly addresses. Maybe you'll find some other areas of application as well. Let me repeat these one more time. Exploring our roots, examining our faith, embracing our identity, and exalting His sufficiency. I believe that each of these areas of discovery will work together in strengthening our spiritual foundation so that we can stand stronger in Christ, so that ultimately we can endure the storms of life, and so that we, the people of Go Church, can be built up into a maturity that brings glory to God, becoming all that He intends for us to be. This will be a season of examination of soul searching, a time for developing a deeper understanding of our own beliefs, a time to build up the biblical foundations of our walk with Christ. I do believe that some of you will come to understand certain foundational truths for the first time. 
Others will be powerfully reminded. Christ came to give us a better way. He's given us a better way. Are we walking in it? To what extent are we walking in it? Somehow, just like the original audience of Hebrews, each of us has a tendency to turn aside to our own way and to return to something more natural. It is in our nature to seek our own way. In this time together, most or all of us will realize some places where we have gone wrong, maybe even some places where we're standing on our heads, if you will. And we will be challenged to return to the path of freedom, which is paved by the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. A better way. Some have never found it. Others have strayed from it in one aspect or another. Still others are walking out the best they can. Regardless, there is more to learn. I hope to see each of you next week as we move from today's introductory uh, material into the real meat of the Word of God as it is recorded in this deep and profound book of the Bible called Hebrews. Would you pray with me now as I ask God to bless us in this season together. Father, we're just, we're, we're like a bunch of piddle dumps. I just, that just resonates with me. I am a, I'm just this crazy person sometimes. I lose track of of what is important. I'm standing on my head in all kinds of ways. God, come and sweep through this congregation. We don't want to be just another um, group of people who are spinning our wheels. I, I want to change, Lord. I want my perspective to change. I want a stronger foundation. And I pray for a stronger foundation for this church. Lord, I don't know what all you're going to speak, how you're going to lead us to change the ways that you're going to move in our hearts. But right now, as a group, we pray and we surrender. Amen, church family, we surrender. We surrender to what you want to do in our lives, God. We may be off on some things. We need to grow. We need to realize where we need to take different steps, where we need to see some false foundations torn down and see the true foundation of grace in Christ be built up. God, just, just move in this church through this season together. I pray even in this week, it's this coming week, as I hope that our people will read the Scripture in preparation, that you would begin to work, begin to change hearts, soften hearts, begin to show us areas that we need to have a better understanding of what you're saying, and just begin to work in our lives even this week. God, I pray for tonight that it would be a blast that we would have fun and great fellowship and celebrate what you've been doing. This is a harvest for us. Um, praise you so much for what you've been doing in our youth group through Pastor James and the other leaders there. Um, s several teenagers have come to the point of saying, yeah, I'm ready. I want to follow Jesus. I'm not ashamed. I'm ready to stand up for Jesus Christ and be baptized tonight. Others, children, adults. Lord, we don't want to take it for granted. A month or so ago, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe we were going to have a, a rough year and we weren't going to get to see any fruit. And then look what you've done. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the glory and praise. Thank you for the six people we baptized in Nicaragua a couple, years, a couple weeks ago. Feels like a couple years. 
I pray tonight it's, it's just a lot of fun and uh, that we would grow together as a church family. Thank you for this morning. Continue to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.